Welcome to Software Snack Bites. I'm your host, Joe McGosh of Bold Start Ventures, where we partner with Dev First and SaaS founders from the first line of code. Today, we're excited to have Fergal Reed on the show. Fergal is the VP of AI at Intercom, which listeners probably know is a customer support software that you likely interact with through those pop-up chatbots that happen on your favorite websites. And in this episode, we're going to cover how Intercom built Finn, their AI chatbot. We'll cover the technical architecture challenges, how others can approach building LLM-enabled products, and the results of shipping AI products as quickly as possible into users' hands. So welcome to the show, Fergal. Thank you very much, Shomik, for having me here. Great to be here. I'm excited. So let's start off with your background. How'd you end up becoming the VP of AI at Intercom? My background originally is technical. I have an undergraduate degree in computer science, straight computer science from maybe finished in 2004, worked for a few years as a software engineer, and then went back and did a PhD in sort of machine learning and as applied to network analysis. I guess because I was just always extremely interested and extremely bullish about AI in future and machine learning was the way of kind of approaching that. Learned a lot doing that, a lot of kind of statistics, machine learning, kind of nuts and bolts. And then after that, went and did a small little startup trying to do a reinforcement learning product back before we really knew what we were doing or in the early days of, I guess, reinforcement learning before we really knew how to make it work in production. That got acquired by a company called Optimizely, and I spent a few years in Optimizely working as a PM, learning a lot about A-B testing, kind of working there. And then moved back to Ireland and after smaller projects joined Intercom about six years ago to kind of found, I guess, a very new machine learning team within Intercom's kind of R&D function, which is mostly based in Europe and mostly based here in Dublin. And Intercom all believed in like a really beautifully designed messenger, really believed that the future of customer support was going to be chat rather than emails or phone calls. And like bots were just always going to be a part of that. And so we started out trying to build what we call resolution bot or used to call resolution bot, which was our product to automatically resolve known questions and built our own kind of custom machine learning and AI for that. And then over time, as machine learning and AI have grown a lot, and then very recently, huge changes in the last year with ChatGPT and OpenAI's models, companies really making a very big bet on AI. And I guess my team is helping with that. I want to dive into actually a lot more of the product stuff in a little bit. But before we do that, I like to say that you were studying ML and AI before it was cool. You know, I believe in 2009, you dove into AI with your PhD and then started to apply it through various startups and professorships and lectures and things like that. And so when you think about how that the field has evolved over that time, I think we've actually been through like four waves of AI during that time. Do you think this latest wave is catching the most fervor and interest because the form factor is so relatable? Or is it that finally the data tooling compute, those building blocks have all caught up? It depends for whom you're talking about. People talking about it on Twitter, it's because, you know, they use ChatGPT and it seems amazing and it seems cool and new. And they're like, wow, this is very useful. And so there's definitely, there's a form factor piece there that there's certain use cases that ChatGPT is a killer app for. And I think that's got a lot of attention for that. Me personally, though, I think what's really amazing is the extent to which these models are able to do reasoning tasks and kind of intelligence that we never managed to get to before. And don't believe anyone who kind of who tells you anything different. They are doing qualitatively new things that machine learning as a field 
struggled for decades to do. And then almost overnight, we've had this huge success. There are many people who spent their careers on linguistics, trying to understand natural language and come up with custom algorithms or specific approaches. And then these large language models just trained at scale suddenly have way better performance on whole different fields of research than the best individual solutions you know, that people worked on for decades. So there's something amazing going on there at a really deep fundamental level, at a technical level, a technological level, and separate and above the specific form factor, the specific product. And ChatGPT and how it looks and stuff is pretty thin. It's kind of an accident of history that that's how we're all interacting with it. But the capabilities there are new and they're wild and it's going to take us a long time to figure out, okay, what do great products look like built on those capabilities? So I think it's a capability shift, a little bit like once upon a time, the first time people saw the World Wide Web and they were like, okay, you know, it doesn't look great. It's certainly a very long way from Gmail and the rich application in the web or Figma, but there's something cool here. And I, I think we're probably at a, a similar stage with AI. And so there's been a technological leap here. Yeah, it's very exciting. How do you think about that though, that, that reasoning ability in 2016, deep learning was all the rage. And I forget, it was like AlphaGo through DeepMind and I think IBM played chess or something like that. There was, there was all these different things. So we've had that reasoning ability. Now we have LLMs that are doing it. Do we ever have like one model to rule them all? Can one model eventually be able to play Go and also reason on text and then also reason on images and so on and so forth? Or, or do you think it'll always be these sort of separate fine-tuned trained things? I think we don't know over time, there'll probably be some benefit to specialization, but definitely the camp that's winning at the moment is the one model to rule them all camp. If you look at just GPT-4, right, really large transformer architecture of some form trained at a huge scale, it has amazing capabilities across many, many different domains. And you mentioned uh, chess there, and we've had chess AIs for ages, but they were just big search machines, deep blue, like simple algorithms, a lot of compute, but GPT-4 can play chess. It can play chess at intermediate type level. It's much better at chess than we'd have predicted it would have been, given that it wasn't really trained to do a lot of chess. And people have done research and it's better at quite a lot of different things than we'd have expected. So chess, I don't know how well it plays Go. Whereas if you look at something like AlphaGo, right? AlphaGo is Monte Carlo tree search, quite a sophisticated search algorithm with a big policy network, a big neural network trained like reinforcement learning. Well, it's trained on Go a lot and with a lot of compute, huge amount of compute just on Go. And then the same algorithms work across a lot of different games, but GPT-4 is trained all at once on many, many, many different tasks and seems to exhibit some degree of transfer learning across tasks. And so it's a a huge big piece of evidence in the camp of, yeah, you can have one big model that you can train on many, many different tasks and it learns more efficiently than training all of the models separately. I think it's very exciting and DeepMind and so on haven't stayed still. They've modeled Gato and so on. They're working on generalizing their models as well, but the progress in the last two, three years is a major piece of evidence that big general models can become extremely powerful and can eclipse a lot of specialized models. We'll see how it plays out over the next few years. Yeah. I want to move into the building of Finn. And I think the place to start is actually, you mentioned the resolution bot you and the team had first built. I believe it did that in 2017 or around there. So I guess describe what that product was and kind of where it fell short. 
Right. So two ways of dealing with that. One is uh, from the product perspective and one is from the technology perspective. From the product perspective, Resolution Bot was this bot that would answer your customer questions, but you had to set it up. We talked about you had to configure answers and those are basically an intent in another product. You essentially had to give it. So if you wanted it to answer a question about refunding you, you had to give it lots of training examples about, hey, here's one user. They say, I need a refund. The other user says, I want my money back. You've got to teach it that in the context of your business, those two things semantically mean the same. And we deliberately pushed that burden of that sort of curation and training of different intents to our customers in order to get the quality bar that was needed for it to be able to deal with random conversation with end users. We didn't have to try and hit that quality bar, but things we did where you didn't have to do that training and that curation just didn't get the quality bar we felt our customers would need in production in the, the messy world of text, customer support text. Because, you know, the meanings of words are different from business to business. And because the models we had at the time weren't powerful enough to do that. And I guess it worked as a product at some level in that, you know, we had lots of happy customers still have who run resolution bot and who get high resolution rates. Maybe it's resolving 30% of their support volume, maybe sometimes 50, 60% when they do the work for the curation, when they go and they set it up and they maintain it. And we spent a lot of time, we built machine learning techniques to try and help you get started and to try and make it easy to look at your previous historical questions when you're getting started and setting up these intents. And we did a lot of work to try and reduce the friction there. And there's probably three or four machine learning systems in that product. However, no matter how much work we did, friction, friction is always a killer. And it required that setup friction. And we were sure it was ROI positive for people, but customer support people are busy. They have, the world is on fire. They have competing priorities. And it was just a very big ask to get them to do that. And so for Finn, one thing we were really excited about is, hey, the model is now good enough that you can just point it at your knowledge base. And we used to do some smarts underneath the hood with retrieval augmented generation, but essentially just point at your knowledge base and it answers all the questions that are contained in your knowledge base. And so we have loads of customers now where they turn on Finn and literally day one, they're getting a 30% resolution rate. It goes up over time as they, they improve their kind of their knowledge base and they get better at using it. But that sort of day one, turning it on and it transforms your support team. That's new, that's magical. And we're really excited about that. So that's from the product perspective, from the technology perspective, resolution bot had several iterations it started out with information retrieval and then a custom algorithm. And then a few years later, it was uh, custom trained word vectors and stuff like that. And then a few years later, neural networks started to get good. We migrated it to medium sized language models. But again, a lot of people in the space are saying things like, well, we've had language models for a while. Intercom has had language models for a while, but there's a qualitative jump in the switch to like the large language models that have become available in the last year or two. So yeah, that's enabled us to build Finn, which is just a next generation product and it's a lot better. So yeah. That's really interesting because I think the way that you were able to get that insight was, I read something about this or maybe saw a talk where you said, hey, when ChatGPT came out, we sort of realized this is it. We need to take advantage of this and move on it quickly. And I'm guessing that 
the way that you were able to move with that level of urgency and speed and recognize that was because you were doing all this work with the various models up until that point and understanding how they were used. So when you saw transformer architectures, you were just like, okay, let's go. This is it. Is that the right way to characterize it? I think it is. We had versions of BERT, which is another transformer in production. So we were used to using transformers. We had a relationship with OpenAI for a few years. We had used GPT-3 and we were like, maybe potential here. But then maybe about uh, six months, nine months before ChatGPT came out, I had actually pitched internally in the company. I put together a strategy document and I was like, hey, the stuff Google is showing recently with Google Lambda is just the quality of dialogue models is just getting so good. This is going to disrupt our space. We need to get ready for this. And we're already starting to try and experiment with generative AI in the intercom inbox. We weren't aware of OpenAI's text DaVinci 2. We just kind of just missed that because they had a leap, you know, for about eight months before ChatGPT. We didn't really catch that. And I don't even know if, if it was quite ready to productize, but it was getting closer. But then when they came out with ChatGPT, a lot of the company, including the founders and so on, execs were late that evening on Slack playing with ChatGPT going, oh my goodness, this is going to completely change your industry. We got hold of Text DaVinci Tree, which released at the same time. We were like, wow, this really is good enough to build on. And so we started building. We just knew it was going to change support. We'd been observing, we had a high confidence that these next generation large models were going to have a big influence on us. I was annoying people about it in Slack and the company wide and we're like, hey, this is coming. I don't know when it's coming, but we probably shouldn't ignore it. And so we had a lot of groundwork done organizationally. And then also like we had benchmarks. We knew how to tell a good bot from a mediocre bot. We knew how to tell a good language model from a mediocre one. Just hard one experience of all the different questions you can ask about to understand failure cases. And we just put them into ChatGPT or into Text DaVinci Dream. We could just see, wow, this is a qualitative jump forward. And we started building. And then we got our hands on GPT-4. We built a relationship with OpenAI. We shipped some features with our inbox. And then they gave us early access to GPT-4. We saw GPT-4 is another huge leap again. It's ready to build an actual end user bot with. And we're still on GPT-4 with Finn for most of its queries. It's a complex architecture to save money underneath the hood. But for the core kind of question answering queries, we're still on GPT-4 because GPT-4 has got the best performance in terms of not hallucination, in terms of understanding help center articles and so on. It's very impressive. If I understand correctly, between GPT-4 and GPT-3.5, you're basically, there's a latency trade-off. Although it doesn't hallucinate as much, it certainly has longer latency. Is that sort of a trade-off where you think about and you're just like, well, hey, we think our customers would rather have, you know, an accurate or more accurate thing than not? Yeah, there's absolutely a latency cost to being on GPT-4. GPT-3.5 Turbo is an extremely low latency, extremely fast model, uh, GPT-4. So we pay a latency cost there. Now, it's not too bad. So actually, Intercom, the messenger, didn't support streaming didn't support the ability to stream text character by character before this came along and in the last few months we've actually built streaming into finn and so we've done a lot we've done ui work to try and it's got this thinking state where it tells you it's thinking for those few seconds before the first tokens start coming true we make certain trade-offs make cost trade-offs that also give us lower latency there's a lot we do to get latency down and we've agonized on it. And in particular, we've agonized because, hey, a lot of our customers who are evaluating bots, 
they're going to evaluate us. They're going to evaluate a different bot running on Turbo, and they're going to be like, well, this other bot's faster. And it is. It is a few seconds faster. We're going to be like, well, one time in 100 or one time in 50, it will make something completely wild up, whereas GPT-4 will hallucinate way, way less. We've got to educate our customers and, and listen to our customers and be like, hey, look, hallucinations are rare, but they can be damaging. We recommend going with GPT-4 and Finn hallucinates a lot less. So yeah, there's trade-off there. There's a complex product trade-off there. We're happy with where we've made it. And we think that over time, customers will realize that a lot of the bots built on 3.5 Turbo just hallucinate a little bit too much and they'd be better off with something built on GPT-4. And of course, the model landscape may change as well, but that's where we are. I want to dive into a little bit more around Finn. Obviously, don't give away any secret sauce or anything like that, but what considerations did the team take into account? And you know, there's a lot of founders and other teams that are listening to this, thinking about how would they use LLMs in their various products. And so what considerations in terms of database access and how you manage prompting and what sort of things did you take into account? I'd say the number one thing that we learned pretty early on is retrieval augmented generation, which is what everyone's calling it now. So basically this idea that, hey, don't just ask the large language model to answer a question. Say to the large language model, using just this article or using just this context, answer the question. Don't answer it without this context. We think that's a way better way to run these LLMs. And we've thought that since we started building Finn, which was in January, I guess. And then we were really surprised to see some major players ship products where they used a naked LLM. Basically, the LLM had been trained with a bunch of data and people asked questions and the LLM just responded. I think maybe Google's version one shipped with this. And we were like, oh, wh why would you do that? If you are a search engine and you have extremely rapid, low latency access to a search interface, just use the LLM to post-process the results of the search interface. And so we were really surprised that people weren't doing that because we realized very early on, this felt like the future of this tech. These things are great at reasoning, but they're much less good as databases because of how they fuzzily kind of store information. And so I guess the number one thing we learned, and I think I would say to everybody is, hey, this retrieval augmented generation step where you use the prompt and then you stuff context into the prompt, that's probably a lot better for very many business use cases rather than just, well, the LLM now knows a bunch of stuff, ask it, but it's much harder to be sure that it isn't hallucinating and making things up. So that was kind of the number one learning for us. And then once you're in that world, well, you can have a lot of control over your product experience by choosing what to push into the prompt and what to put in this context. And there's all these different techniques that you can use to make various trade-offs in terms of cost and latency and accuracy around the chain of thought prompting and all this sort of stuff, get the model to show its work, tell it to think step-by-step, step. all these kind of weird magic <laughs> incantations that you're using to work with these systems. And that's all become sort of pretty commonplace. But I would say, yeah, that retrieval augmented generation is, is extremely promising. Yeah, and I'm sure the models will get smarter and smarter, but also they've gotten so good at following instructions. I think retrieval augmented generation approaches is definitely the way to start, I would say. In general, do people need to think about doing few shot prompting or something like that before actually putting in the customer's prompt? Or is that something that you think with RAG kind of almost goes away? It depends. GPT-4 is very good at following instructions. And so I think you can get away with zero shot. You can get away with just saying, hey, here is an article. This is what I want you to do. And you give it a whole bunch of instructions. 
maybe if you're using a smaller model or a different model, if you're using a smaller model, you give several examples where, you know, hey, here is an instruction and then here's the context and then here's the answer that I would expect to see from the instruction. Here's two, three examples of that. Now, here's the actual thing. And that can work well for smaller models, but we find in a lot of use cases that for GPT-4, you don't even need to do that. You talked about how Finn actually, or even if it's not Finn particularly, but you use multiple models sometimes to come up with the output. So that could be GPT-4 and GPT-3.5. Maybe that even means a completely clawed or whatever, a different LLM, right? I'm more just curious, in a multiple model context, is it just APIs triggering other APIs? Or how is the context routed between these models? If you look at Finn, any bot like Finn, there's the start of a conversation where the user comes along and the bot has to say hi, and the user says, hi, I have a question. And then maybe the bot has to clarify their question, or maybe the bot needs to prompt them to, oh, yes, I can help you. Please ask your question. So let's just say there's many different stages in the conversation. But if we just look at that stage, we've implemented that stage with Turbo because it's fast and because it doesn't need to be that intelligent to do that well. And so as we've built Finn, we've ended up in this architecture where you use GPT-4 to build the first version of everything and it works really well, but it's very expensive. And then you migrate and you A-B test your way to lower and lower, lower powered models. And so Finn now will, I think a lot of people are building products like this. You end up with an, in our, a mixed model architecture where sometimes you use the more expensive model when you really need it. Other times you use the cheap, fast models when you can get away with it. Products are going to go more and more like that where there's either a different model chosen for each of the different subtasks, maybe quite fine-grained subtasks that you know feel to the end user like a single interaction, but underneath the hood are actually different models. And then you might end up with other times where there's progressive use of models. I know people are experimenting with using, using a smaller model to cache, or people are even doing things like using a smaller model to start generating text and then check for agreement and check for confidence and then either terminate the execution of a larger model. There's a lot of different ways to do these things. And I think people are going to look back in five years and you're going to see all the stuff we did by hand. And it's this is kind of like in the early days of computers, before you had a language that manages memory, you were writing your own memory managers and you didn't have an operating system that does page faults or something like that. A lot of things we're doing by hand at the moment with retrieval augmented generation are surely going to go away. The LLM providers or somebody else is going to put a layer on top of these that's just going to handle a lot of like shuffling around of context. It's going to handle a lot of choosing when to run the more expensive model and when to run the cheaper model and so on and so on. So yeah, it's, it's an evolving space and it's an early space, but there's so much value being unlocked here. I think the tools are going to get good. I think Intercom uses embeddings, vector embeddings. And I think about it in a relational database mindset where it's you fill in all the information and then you have some sort of CRUD actions over time that you, know, you could update, you could change it, whatever. In that same concept for vector embeddings and for these arrays, how often do you need to update that? And how does that work? Is that, okay, we have this embedding and then now we just realized it didn't quite work for this use case and now let's update it or something? Is that the right way to think about it? For our resolution bot product, prior to where we built Finn, we had built our own vector database. We essentially, back before vector databases were a thing, we were using an embedding-based approach to kind of handle that. And that wow, that's cool. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, and we, you know, we looked at the start the vector database startups in the early days, and we were like, wow, these are going to be big. We did that, and so we had that tech already before we built Finn. And so specifically, you know, if someone updated a resolution bot answer 
as soon as they updated that, we re-embed the content and then we'll propagate to our proto vector database. And then we've essentially built in the same tech for Finn. So for Finn, it's just whenever an article changes in the intercom system, we just trigger a process that will then go and re-embed that and then put that into our vector database. And recently, in fact, we've done some work. Our vector database has needed to be, had to go up a level of sophistication in order for this. And actually, we've done some work to just build on top of Elasticsearch. So our vector database now is moved from our own custom thing to just Elasticsearch, basically. And we already operate Elasticsearch at a substantial degree of scale for intercom. And so it was, it's pretty easy to just store our, our vector embeddings in that. That would be a fascinating blog post and conference talk in the future. So look, yeah, looking forward yeah. to that. But the next area I want to move into is a lot of people, obviously, especially enterprises, are all worried about data privacy, security around LLMs and what to do. And so obviously, you guys ship this product. You've been doing it for quite a long time. You've been thinking about this for a while. What are best practices that you would share for others? We're in Dublin and we operate under GDPR, of course, and following the principles and the practices you need to maintain compliance with that gets you a long way. So for our products, obviously we do have to send data to OpenAI in order to use OpenAI's models. We have agreements with them that they won't use the data to train anything else. And I think we're actually with zero retention as well. I need to double check that, but I think that's live now. Previously, they were retaining the data for 30 days for debugging purposes. I think we're down to zero retention, although I'd need to double check. But essentially, I think the risk profile there, assuming that you're, you're willing to trust OpenAI, which you have to do in order to use Finn, trust to some extent, the risk profile there is pretty low. It's pretty reasonable and acceptable compared to the, the general standard of SaaS. And then it's, okay, well, we're essentially using OpenAI in a stateless way. They're not storing any data. They're not storing any customer data in any long-term way. And so the privacy risks there, a lot of people, a lot of our customers are very worried that OpenAI is going to train their data into a big model and then leak their data. And OpenAI just commit to not doing that for the enterprise plans. OpenAI may have, may have made a mistake because with ChatGPT, there was this thing where, hey, ChatGPT, your data you put into it as an end user can be used to train other things. And I, I, I don't even know if they ever did that or really planned to do that. But I think that they sort of created this expectation of people in the world that, hey, ChatGPT is a bit of a, a tricky place to send your data. I think OpenAI may have said they won't even do that anymore. But I guess from a business perspective, people who have an enterprise agreement using their, their API, there's no burdensome terms or, or Faustian deal to do there as far as, you know, so yeah, I think, I think maybe people just got confused about that. What have been some of the results from Finn? You mentioned like 30% and improving in terms of resolutions that are, are happening, but is time to resolution coming down meaningfully or, or is there any specific percentages that you can mention? Probably not able to share a specific percentage other than what we have on our marketing website. We talk about resolving up to 50%. That's a real figure. People get that. A lot of customers get literally the day one resolution rate is way up there is 20, 30% instantly with no tuning and no configuration at all. That's not an official marketing figure. That's just what we see on our internal dashboards. It's definitely working. It's definitely delivering a lot of value. There's a lot of customers happy with it. I mean, look, like anything, there's always going to be some variability depending on the domain. We have some customers where they have end users who come along and who ask them the same rote questions again and again and again every time. And that's 80, 90% of their conversation set. 
they're going to get really great resolution rates. Then we've other customers who have end users that come along and ask them very narrowly long tail questions about a complex product, their resolution rates are going to be a lot lower. So it's always been very difficult. There's always been a bit of exaggeration from some vendors in this space. I won't name any names. You have to try these products out and see how they work for your business. But we get meaningful results here, results that would have taken months of dedicated work with our previous generation product, customers now get out of the box. And because we believe in this, we spent a lot of time and energy building sort of a demo experience for Finn, where you can go and you can just put in a URL and point it at your help center and it'll scrape in your help center and then give you a version of Finn just running out of the box on that before you even purchase or talk to sales or anything. And so people can go and try it and actually see themselves, okay, am I happy with this? And we think a lot of customers will be, and it's doing well. We're pretty pleased with its trajectory as a product. What has happened in the case of hallucinations to customers? Have the customers been, screw you, <laughs> Intercom, you're the worst, we're never going to use you again? Or have they been you know, more receptive to it and understand, just say, hey, this happens, but you guys have helped us with 50%. I guess the first thing I would say is the hallucination rate isn't zero. We've tried extremely hard to get it down. It's not zero. The next thing I'd say is not all hallucinations are equally bad to each other. There's hallucinations where the bot says something that is, you know, pretty helpful and pretty reasonable, but isn't technically something it was supposed to say. It makes an inference from an article in a knowledge base that's just slightly wrong. We do see that that does happen. And then there's the worst form of hallucination where it it makes something up that's really not supported and is actually wrong. You know, it didn't get lucky. If you're in a domain that has zero tolerance for those hallucinations, you probably shouldn't use large language models yet. However, you know, most people, we would say that Finn is pretty human competitive, or at least it's, it's in the, the region of human competitive. Your human support reps often will slightly misunderstand something or tell end users something that's slightly wrong. And so we would say it's in that regime. It's Hallucinations are pretty rare with the way we've built it. And we've put a lot of care and effort into doing that, but they're not zero. And so customers are going to have to look at that themselves and see if that trade-off's right for them. We think that trade-off is right for a huge number of businesses. Anyone with outsourced human customer support, there's a lot of businesses that I think that trade-off will be worth it. It's really good. If we get a report of a hallucination, we often find ourselves really looking at the article content and then the response and going, is that really technically wrong? And a lot of the time when a customer reports a hallucination, we look at it, we're like, we're really, okay, yeah, this is a hallucination, but that article is pretty ambiguous. The answer it gave here was pretty reasonable and it's pretty quick for the customer to just change the help center article. Me reading the help center article of the customer I would probably also make the same mistake. A lot of hallucinations are of that form. And so then it's the question of, and they're rare. We don't have exact figures. When we try and benchmark anything in terms of, hey, has this created less hallucinations? It's hard. We have to run it for a long time to find enough hallucinations to see an impact on them. And so it's just, I think people who their expectations have been colored by ChatGPT based on 3.5 Turbo, that's a very, very different beast. The, Finn hallucinates a lot less than ChatGPT based on Turbo because firstly, we're on GPT-4 and then secondly, we're using it in this retrieval augmented generation way where if it doesn't know the answer to something, it'll say, 
I don't know. And we teach you to do that. So yeah, it's a very different profile than, than Turbo. We think it's ready for most businesses, although probably not the most sensitive domains. I wouldn't put this into production. If you have a bunch of medical data in your help center and you're answering actual medical questions, no, I wouldn't, I wouldn't do that. So you charge based on actually successful resolution. And I kind of want to understand like, what was the thinking behind that and how'd you arrive at that pricing model? Dara, our CTO and his team did a lot of work on that and really agonized about different pricing models. So firstly, these large language models are extremely expensive. GPT-4 costs a lot of money to run. And we were like, okay, how are we going to explain to customers that this is worth doing? And well, one way is we build per resolution. We build when the bot has given an answer and then the end user hasn't kind of said, hey, it didn't help, let me talk to the team. We build just in those cases where we think it's been successful. It might come in three times or it might come in two times. It might try and answer questions twice for each time it gets a resolution like that. Also, sometimes people ask two or three questions in a row. And so the price all adds up there. And so we were like, how are we going to explain to customers this? And it's going to be expensive for us to run and operate. And we managed to get it down, get the price down enough to where it was, okay, we, we can do this at one dollar per resolution. That's expensive. That's a lot more expensive than, you know, you're used to paying for AWS or any sort of like metered software thing. You know, that seems expensive, but it's just large language models are just expensive to run at the moment. And most of our customers will look at that and be like, well, I paid $10 per resolution for my human support rep. And so $1 is a lot less than 10. Okay. Even though it's expensive, it's worth it. And so like that was really what drove our thinking there. We wanted to make something which is clearly value aligned. There's a broader thing. Intercom in general, we're trying hard. We've been a lot of work to, you know, this billing team and a bunch of teams have done a lot of work on that are trying to overhaul intercom pricing to make our pricing like very understandable and very clear because Intercom has received criticism in the past from a lot of our customers who are like, hey, this pricing, I don't fully understand it. So we're doing a lot of work to make it clear. And I guess when we had the opportunity to ship this new product, Finn, we were like, okay, look, this is something that's going to make the cost a bit more palatable. It's clearly value aligned. Clearly, if, if we generate more resolutions, we win, you win the customer. And so I guess it was a combination of those things. And we considered alternate models, like should we bill just per conversation that Finn was in? And then, well, our internal incentive then, we're incentivized to just turn it on and forget about it. And billing per resolution forces us to continue to make the product better and better. So there's, there's all sorts of good org health things to billing metrics that align with actual customer value and, and actual end user value too. If the end user kind of says, hey, Bob, get out of my way, you're useless. I need to talk to a human. I haven't gotten my answer. We don't bill for that. And so we've done a lot of work at Intercom in the past to try and make products that are good for both the customers and for the end users. And that's something I like about working at Intercom. We've always hesitated to try and just build deflection machines. We want to build things that actually resolve things. And so now the pricing metric that kind of reflects that and aligns with that very, very clearly. And then also hopefully helps to explain Hey, yeah, this is expensive because LLMs are expensive, but hopefully explains that it's worth it. So, you know, we'll see. Well, I think overall the feedback has been positive on it, but still early days. We have a lot of technical teams that listen to this podcast for tactical advice. And so what are some things that are top of mind for you for teams that are building LLM enabled products? This new technology enables you to move fast, enables you to get started fast. And so I would say you can build your MVP faster. You know, in the past, you wanted to build an AI product. You had to go and do like a lot of work, a lot of model training. 
these days you can probably build a version one by just zero shot running a whole bunch of english language instructions and getting gpt4 to do the task and maybe that accuracy won't be quite what you want and maybe it won't scale and the cost won't scale but you can validate and build your ai mvp extremely fast with this and then iterate from there and work on scalability and work on cost later and so i would say that there's definitely there's a, a new world of product mvps that have totally unlocked with this technology i think that's really exciting i think people should take advantage of that these things are great at interfacing with different systems these are great at taking actions and triggering things i think that's very exciting there's a lot that can be built with that i would say look at these large language models not just in terms of the form factor of the products you've seen before where it's text they can be used as reasoning engines to drive apis and we're only just starting to figure out the capabilities that they should unlock with that i mean finally they're becoming multimodal that's very exciting and we will look back on this time. I think it'll look very early in probably in two different ways. One way it'll look like we're very early is the way we use these products is probably going to look very primitive. It's going to be best practices and patterns and stuff for using these sort of APIs. And, you know, you look at the early days of any new technology and you, oh, they used to do what? And like, so when people will look back at the way we implement our products and say, they used to do what? I think that's one thing. And the second big thing is I don't expect the technology to stand still. I think these models are just so much money going into training models here. Capabilities are going to get better and better and better. The ability to fine tune these models sooner or later, it's going to be possible to fine tune models a bit like GPT-4. And so much value is just going to unlock the range of tasks that humans currently have to do or that currently we have to work awkward software in order to achieve the range of tasks that are just addressable by these models is just going to get bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger over time. And so I'm extremely bullish about AI, as you can probably tell, I would say, get moving, ship MVPs and go for it because yeah, you can probably do, do awesome things either now or in the near future. I love that. And what you said that really resonates with me is LLMs, even the term large language models, one doesn't incorporate the multimodality part of it as much in that phrase. And then also they should be called reasoning engines or something, because what, what you just said is much more that sticks in my mind about the use cases I could do. Hey, anytime I need to reason, let's do this versus LLM. So I think that's, that's at least my takeaway. I totally agree with that. I think these systems, like there's lots of ways to think about them, but the way I think about them is, Hey, it's a database and it's a reasoning engine. And the really cool, important piece is the reasoning engine. We kind of had to build a database to it to get that. But really, the database isn't that good. It's fuzzy and it's unreliable and so on. You'd never build a database like that if, you know, from scratch. The reasoning engine is extremely powerful. They're able to, you know, take action and interface and reason with a lot of different systems and a lot of different contexts. And that's just amazing. This is a reasoning tool we now have and it's something, something amazing there. Let's see if we can get OpenAI to change the uh, change the terminology. But uh, Fergal, thank you so much for the time. This was a fascinating discussion. What would you like to highlight for Intercom that's coming up? We're continuing to invest and build Finash and make an industrial strength. We're doing a lot of work on AI in the inbox as well. How do we make reps faster and more efficient? And there's a lot of work to do on that. One thing that could be important for our company is, you know, I alluded earlier, pricing. I think we're hoping to overhaul that and that, that might make us more adoptable by customers that have been a little bit wary about pricing in the past. 
So yeah, there's a lot going on on Intercom. No specific announcements to share, I'm afraid, at this point, Joe. <laughs> no worries at all. Well, I'm, I'm very excited for the coming blog post that I will announce for the Elastic stuff, which sounds very cool. So I'm looking forward to reading that. Thanks so much for the time and uh, looking forward to doing this again in the future. Thank you very much, Joe. Thank you very much for having me.